0: PODCASTLE, EPISODE 345
1: FOR JANUARY 6TH, 2015
0: Makisha IN TIME
1: BY RACHEL K. JONES
0: RATED R Hello and welcome to a very, very special episode of PODCASTLE. I'm Dave Thompson.
1: And I'm Anna Schwind. New Year! This is our first episode of 2015. We're glad you've joined us again.
0: And wow, do we have a story for you today. Before we get too far into it, though, I want to mention that the story itself is about 20 minutes. Anna and I have some things we want to talk to you about after the story. (laughs) It's looking like we talked for quite a while. You want to go and script it on that, Anna, after the show?
1: Danger, Dave Thompson. Danger.
0: (sighs) But for now, let's talk a little bit about this fantastic story. I read it when it came out in cross-genres back in August and was just absolutely floored by it. It was, and remains to be, one of the best stories I've read of 2014. And I knew we had to get it here at Podcastle and make as much noise about it as possible. I'm not gonna lie, I would love to see it get nominated for all kinds of awards this year. It's that good. And for us at Podcastle, well... I think it's kind of the epitome of what Anna and I have been trying to do here for the last five years. It's got the best closing lines of a story that I've read in a long time. So, yeah, we really wanted to bring it to you folks today, New Year's, because it seems like the perfect story to kick the year off. And also, we wanted as many people as possible to be aware of it during award season. So, I got in touch with the good people at Cross Genre Bart R. Lieb, K.T. Holt, and Kelly Jennings and they graciously allowed us to waive their exclusivity to it so we could run it now. A big, big thanks to the Cross Genres team for that, and for initially championing this piece.
1: We're not the only people that loved it. Kay Tempest Bradford gave it a lot of praise in her io9 fiction column when it first came out, and then she named it one of the best short stories of 2014.
0: Podcastle is very, very proud to present Makisha in Time by Rachel K. Jones. Originally published in Cross Genres, August 2014. Rachel K. Jones is a science fiction and fantasy author and editor living in Athens, Georgia. Her fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in a variety of venues, including PodCastle, Escape Pod, Strange Horizons, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Cross Genres, and daily science fiction. You can find more of her stories through her blog or follow her on Twitter at Rachel K. Jones.
1: This story, Rachel says, one of my pet peeves about time travel stories involving women and people of color is that so many of them carry an assumption that everything about the past was just terrible if you weren't a straight white male, that attitudes and restrictions were so bad that women in POC were unable to accomplish anything significant at all
0: she also said, This argument has bothered me for a long time, but I never knew why until I started following the medieval POC Tumblr and read Cameron Hurley's Hugo-winning essay, We Have Always Fought. Both dismantled the idea that women and people of color were historically passive, that somehow they weren't present or active in all the places and times that we think of as important in Western history. That was the starting point for Makisha in Time. I wanted to write a story that begins with the idea that the past is a place where Makisha has already been wildly successful. Her real conflict is in the present, battling it out with historians and the forces of historical erasure for the right to her legacy. Wait a minute. Time travel? We have a time travel story? I thought we hated time travel, Anna.
1: This is why we never post lists about the stuff we hate, Dave. This one is a good one. Your narrator this week is the one and only K. Tempest Bradford. Oh yeah, K. Tempest Bradford. We've featured her stories here before, including Podcastle 123, The Black Feather, Podcastle 53, Change of Life, and Miniature 28, Elfaware. If you go back far enough into the PodCastle Archive, before the time of Dave and Anna even, she hosted an episode, Episode 3, Run of the Fiery Horse, by Hilary Moon Murphy. She does the aforementioned weekly short fiction roundup column for io9, which is a great place to find out what's new and worth checking out. You can find her online at ktempestbradford.com.
0: So flex your knuckles. Get ready to bend the fourth dimension and enjoy the story.
2: Makisha in Time by Rachel K. Jones Makisha has always been able to bend the fourth dimension, though no one believes her. She has been a soldier, a sheriff, a pilot, a prophet, a poet, a ninja, a nun, a conductor of trains and symphonies, A cordwainer, a comedian, a carpetbagger, a troubadour, a queen, and a receptionist. She has shot arrows, guns, and cannons. She speaks an extinct Ethiopian dialect with a perfect accent. She knows a recipe for me that is measured in Auroch's horns, and with a katana she is deadly. Her jumps happen intermittently. She will be yanked from the present without warning, and live a whole lifetime in the past. When she dies, she returns right back to where she left, restored to a younger age. It usually happens when she is deep in conversation with her boss, or arguing with her mother-in-law, or during a book club meeting just when it is her turn to speak. One moment, Makisha is firmly grounded in the timeline of her birth, and the next, she is elsewhere, else when. Makisha has seen the sun rise over prehistoric shores, where the ocean writhed with soft, slimy things that bore the promise of dung beetles, Archaeopteryx, and Edgar Allan Poe. She has seen the sun set upon long-forgotten empires. When Makisha skims the map of the continents, she sees a fractured Pangaea. She never knows where she will jump next or how long she will stay, but she is never afraid. Makisha has been doing this all her life. Makisha learned long ago to lie about the jumping. When she was nine, she attempted to prove it to her mother by singing in Egyptian, but her mother just laughed and sent her to do the dishes. She received worse when she contradicted her, her history teachers. It was intolerable, sitting in school, the body of a child, but with the memories of innumerable lifetimes, while incomplete truths and half-truths and outright lies were written on the board. The adults called a conference about her attention-seeking behavior. "'and she learned to keep her mouth shut. "'The hardest part is coming back. "'Once, when she was twelve, "'she was slouched in the pew at church "'when she felt the past tug. Makisha found herself floundering "'on the roiling ocean of the Mediterranean, "'only to be saved by Moorish pirates "'who hauled her aboard in the nick of time. "'At first the bewildered men and women "'treasured their catch as a mascot "'and a good-luck charm. "'Later, after nearly ten years "'of fine sea craft and fearless warfare, they made her captain of the ship. Makisha took to piracy like sheet music. She could climb ropes and hold her grog with the best sailors, and even after losing an eye in a gunpowder explosion, she never once wept and wished herself home. The day came when, at the Pasha's command, she set sail to intercept Spanish invaders in Ottoman waters. It was a hot night when they sighted the lanterns of the enemy shuddering on the waves. Makisha's crew pulled their ship astern, the enemy's vessel in the dark and the fog after midnight. She gave the order. Charge! Her deep voice booming through the mists, echoed by the shouts of her pirates as they swung on ropes over the sliver of ocean between the ships. And suddenly, an explosion and a pinching sensation in her midriff, and she was twelve again, in a church pew, staring at her soft palms through two perfect eyes. That was when she finally wept, so loud and hard that the reverend stopped his sermon to scold her. Her father grounded her for a week after that. People often get angry with Makisha when she returns. She can't control her befuddlement, the way the room spins like she is drunk, and how for days and weeks afterwards she cannot settle back into who she was. Because the truth is, she isn't the same. Each time she returns from the past, she carries another lifetime nestled within her like the shell of a Matryoshka doll. Once, after the fall of the Roman Empire, she joined a peasant uprising in Bavaria. Charging quickly from fiefdom to fiefdom, their band pushed back the warlords to the foothills of the Alps. Those who survived sued for mercy, begged her not to raise their fields, pledged fealty to her. As a condition of the peace, Makisha demanded their daughters in marriage to seal the political alliance. The little kings, too afraid of the barbarian queen to shout their umbrage, Conceited. They even attended the weddings, where Makisha stood with her sword piece tied at her waist and took the trembling hand of each Bavarian princess into her own. Once the wedding guests left, Makisha gathered her wives together in the throne room. Please, she said to them, help me. I need good women I can trust to run this kingdom right. With their help, she established a stable state in those war torn days. In time, all her wives made excellent deputies, ambassadors, sheriffs, and knights in her court. Makisha had been especially broken up when her time in Bavaria was cut short by a bout of pneumonia. Many of her wives had grown to be dear friends of hers, and she wondered for months and months what had become of them and their children, and whether her fiefdom had lasted beyond her passing. She wanted to talk to her best friend Philippa, to cry about it, but her calls went unanswered and so did her emails. Makisha could not remember the last time she had spent time with Philippa or her other friends here in the present. It was so hard to remember when her weeks and months were interspersed with whole lifetimes of friends and lovers and enemies. The present was a stop-motion film, a book interrupted mid-page and abandoned for years at a time, and when she did return, she always carried with her another death. Makisha does not fear death anymore. She has died so many times, Always awakening in the present, whole and alive as before the jump. She does not know what would happen if she died in the present. Perhaps she would awaken in the future. She has never tried to find out. She cannot remember her first death. She probably died hundreds of times in her infancy before she was old enough to walk. Her jumps left her in the wilderness or ocean more often than not. And when she did arrive near civilization, few took pity on a strange abandoned child who could not explain her presence. Makisha's mother often joked about her appetite. How, from the time she was a baby, she ate like a person on the verge of starvation. Her mother does not know how close this is to the truth. These days, Makisha wears her extra pounds with pride, knowing how often they've been her salvation. When Philippa finally returns her calls, she reams Makisha for slighting her all year for the forgotten birthday, for the missed housewarming party. Makisha apologizes like she always does. They meet up in person for a catch-up over coffee and Makisha resolves that this time she will be present for her friend. They are deep in conversation when she feels the tug, just as Philippa is admitting that she's afraid of what the future may bring. Ah, no, thinks Makisha when she finds herself blinking on the edge of a sluggish river under the midday sun. Two white bulls have lifted their heads to stare at her, water dripping from their jowls. Makisha struggles to keep the conversation fresh in her head as she casts around for a quick way home. She chooses the river. It is hard that first time to make herself inhale, to still her windmilling arms, to let death take this matryoshka life so she can hasten back to the present. She has lost the thread of the conversation anyway when she snaps back to Philippa's kitchen. Migraine, she explains, rubbing away the memory of pain from her dizzy head, and Philippa feeds her two aspirin and some hot mint tea. Makisha resolves to do better next time, and eventually she does. On her first day with Carl, she strangles herself with strings from the lute of a Hittite bard. On their wedding day, she detours to a vast desert that she cannot place, which she escapes by crawling into a scorpion nest. That death was painful. The next time she jumps, two days later on their honeymoon, she takes the time to learn the proper way to open her wrists with a sharp-edged rock. Her husband believes her when she says it's migraines. All of it the self-imposed silence, the suicides, the banishing of her fantastic past to the basement of her brain, these are the price of a normal life, of friendships, and a marriage, and a steady job. Mundane though it is, Makisha reminds herself that this life is different from the other ones, irreplaceable, real. Still, she misses the past where she has lived most of her life She reads history books with a black marker and strikes out the bits that make her scoff. Then, with a red pen, she writes in the margins all the names she can recall, all the forgotten people who mattered just as much as George Washington and Louis XIV. When Carl asks, she explains how the world has always belonged to more than just the great men who were kings and presidents and generals, but for some reason no one wrote it down. "'I think you're trying too hard,' he says." and she hates the pity in his eyes when he holds up his hands and adds, but if it makes you happy, keep on with it. One day, as a surprise, her husband drove her four hours to a museum hosting an exhibit on medieval history. Makisha screeched and grabbed Carl's arm when she saw the posters at the entrance. Eighth century Bavaria. It had been five years and dozens of self-murdered lives since she was torn from her thriving kingdom, from her deputy wives and her war band, but the memories were still so fresh. Her face was composed as she purchased the tickets, but she bounced on the balls of her feet all the way to the front of the line. It was the first time she had encountered any proof of a previous life. Euphoria flared in her breast when she peered into glass cases that held familiar objects. Old and worn, but recognizable all the same. The proof of her long years of warfare and wisdom and canny leadership. A lead comb, most of its bristles missing, its colored enamel long ago worn to gray. It had belonged to Juti, perhaps. She had such fine, long hair, although she had kept it bound tightly for her work as a doctor. A thin gold ring she had given to dark-eyed Berthe in commemoration of her knighthood. And best of all, a silver coin stamped with her own stylized profile, her broad nose jutting past her Bavarian war helm. There was a placard on the glass. Makisha read it thrice, each time a little slower, thinking perhaps she'd missed something. But no. Early medieval objects from the court of a foreign king. He reigned in Bavaria for about thirty years. He? He? Makisha stormed back to the entrance, demanded to speak with the manager, her vision swimming a violent red, her hand groping for a pommel she did not wear anymore. It was wrong. It was all wrong, wrong, wrong. Her wives assigned a husband and stripped of their deputyship? Their legacy handled to a manufactured person? Karl begged her to tell him what was wrong. Makisha realized she was shouting oaths in ancient German, and that was when she felt the familiar tug in her navel and found herself spinning back, back, further back than she had gone last time until she arrived on an empty beach beneath a moon with a smooth, craterless face. Her practice eye spotted three ways to die on its first sweep drowning, impaling, crushing. But there was Judy's comb to consider, and that placard. When she gave up time travel, she never thought she had surrendered her legacy, too. Makisha turned her back on the ocean and walked into the woods, busying herself with building a fire and assembling the tools she would need for her stay, however long it might be. She had learned to be resourceful and unafraid of the unfamiliar creaks and groans in the ferny green of the prehistoric underbrush. She chipped a cascade of sparks into her kindling, and that is when Makisha formed her plan. She is done with the present, with the endless self-murder, and with the repression and suffocation and low stakes. A woman unafraid to die can do anything she wants. A woman who can endure starvation and pain and deprivation can be her own boss, set her own agenda. The one thing she cannot do is to make them remember she did it. Makisha is going to change that. No more suicides then. Makisha embraces the jumps again. She is a boulder thrown into the waters of time. In eighth century Norway, she joins a band of Viking women. They are callous, but good humored, and they take her rage in stride as though she has nothing to explain. They give her a sword taller than she is, but she learns to swing it anyway, and to sing loudly into the wind when one of the slain is buried with her hoard, sword folded on her breast. When she returns to the present, Makisha has work to do. She will stop mid-sentence, spin on her heel and head for the books, leaving an astonished co-worker or friend or her husband calling after her. She pours everything into the search for her own past. One of her contacts sends her an email about a Moorish pirate, a woman, making a name for herself among the Ottomans. A Spanish monk wrote about her last voyage, the way she leapt upon her prey like a gale in the night, how her battle cry chilled the blood. Makisha's grin holds until the part where the monk called her a whore. This is accepted without question as factual by the man writing the book. She is obsessed. Makisha almost loses her job because of her frequent forgetfulness, her accidental rudeness. Her desk is drowned in ancient maps. Her purse is crammed with reams of genealogies. In her living room which has been lined from wall to wall with history books ever since Carl moved out, Makisha tries to count the lives stacked inside her. There are so many of them. They're crowding to get out. She once tried to calculate how many years she had been alive. It was more than a thousand. And what did they amount to? Makisha is smeared across the timeline, but no one ever gets her quite right. Those who found the cairn of her Viking band assumed the swords and armor meant the graves of men. A folio of her sonnets, anonymous after much copying, are attributed to her assistant, Giorgio. You're building a fake identity, Philippa tells her one day, daring the towers of books and dried out markers to bring Makisha some soup. There weren't any black women in ancient Athens, there weren't any in China. You need to come to grips with reality, my friend. There were two, says Makisha fiercely, proudly. I know there were. They were just erased, forgotten. I'm sure there are a few exceptions, but women just didn't do the kind of things you're interested in, Makisha says. It doesn't matter what I do, if people refuse to believe it. Her jumps are more subdued after that. She turns to the written word for immortality. Makisha leaves love poetry on the walls of Aztec tombs in carefully colored Nahuatl pictograms. She presses cuneiform into soft clay, documenting the exploits of the proud women whose names are written in red in the margins of her history books. She records the names of her lovers in careful Hansi strokes with horsehair bristles in bamboo books. Even these, the records she makes herself, do not survive intact. Sometimes the names are replaced by others deemed more remarkable, more credible, by the scribes who come after. Sometimes they are erased entirely— Mostly the books just fade into dust with time. She takes comfort knowing that she's not unique, that the chorus of Lost Voices is thundering. She is fading from the present. She forgets to eat between jumps, loses weight. Sometimes she starves to death when she lands in an isolated spot. Carl catches her one day at the mailbox. Sorry for just showing up. You haven't returned my calls, he explains, offering her a sheaf of papers. Makisha accepts them and examines the red-stamped first page of their divorce papers. You need to sign here, Carl says, pointing upside down at the bottom of the sheet. Also on the next page. Please? That last word carries a pleading tone. Makisha notes his puffy eyes and a single white hair standing out on the black nest of his beard. How long has it been? She asks. She has lived at least three lifetimes since he left, but she isn't sure too long, he says. Please, I just need your signature so we can move on. She pats her pockets and finds a red pen. Makisha wonders how many decades or centuries until this signature is also altered or lost or purposely erased, but she touches pen to paper anyway. Halfway through her signature, she spends 26 years sleeping under the stars with the aborigines, and when she comes back, the rest of her name trails aimlessly down the sheet. Carl doesn't seem to notice. After he leaves, she escapes into India for a lifetime, where she ponders whether her time travel is a punishment or purgatory. When she returns to the present again, Makisha weeps like she did when she was twelve and her heart was breaking for her days as a pirate. Perhaps it is not the past that is yanking her away. Perhaps the present is crowding her out. And perhaps she has finally come to agree with the sentiment. In her living room, Among the towers of blacked-out books, Makisha sees six ways to die from where she stands. Perhaps the way out is forward, break through the last Matroiska shell like a hatchling into daylight. But no, no. The self-murders were never for herself, not once. Makisha is resilient. She is resourceful. And she has been bending the fourth dimension all her life, whether anyone recognizes it or not. A woman who has been pushed her whole life will eventually learn to push back. Makisha reaches forward into the air. With skillful fingers that have killed and healed and mastered the cello, she pulls the future toward her. She has not returned.
0: And And welcome welcome back. back. I love that image of Makisha at the end, of her pulling the future toward her, and then never returning. I think that's one of the most powerful, perfect endings I've read in a long while. It's also super cool to me that this story was inspired by Cameron Hurley's essay, We Have Always Fought, which you might remember that we featured here last year at PodCastle. Like I said at the beginning of the show, in a lot of ways... It really feels like this is the epitome of what Anna and I want to do with PodCastle and represents what we hope for from the fantasy fiction genre in general. Which brings us to that big announcement I mentioned at the beginning of the show. Folks, as we mentioned in the Metacast, we have some super, super, very exciting things planned for you in the upcoming three months.
1: That said, we are stepping down as editors of PodCastle. Because the production schedule is what it is, you will still be hearing from us in the first three months of 2015, and we particularly have an invested interest in the upcoming Escape Artist Artemis Rising event.
0: Yeah, that was something that we were heavily involved in creating, and we really wanted to be a part of. But, but as far as Podcastle goes, this is goodbye. Why? Well, we have slightly different reasons, but I want to assure everyone this is not something we decided spur of the moment. This is something we've been contemplating for a while now. We've been doing this for a long time—five years. It takes a lot of time to put the show together. For me, running podcasts over the last five years with Anna has been an incredible dream, and I've been so lucky to have been able to do. Podcastle with Anna, who's one of my favorite people, the best person I could have hoped for in having a partner and co-editor here, and who I will miss talking to every week about stories, and narrators, and pretty much everything else. She keeps me honest, mostly, keeps me grounded while at the same time inspiring me, and getting to do Podcastle here for five years, taking you all to a different world every week, pushing those boundaries and dimensions, it's been one of the best and most satisfying things I've done. But there are still some other dreams that I need to try and chase down. The biggest one is my own writing. I've got some stories I really, really want to tell myself. Short stories, novels. Podcastle takes a lot of work, a lot of hours every week. And there's sadly not enough time in the week for me to do that and also my own writing.
1: And I don't know about you guys, but I'm looking forward to a world with more Dave Thompson fiction in it. Go to it, Dave. We're waiting for you. As for me, I like endings. Sometimes our endings just come to us and we just have to take them because there they are. But sometimes we get to make our own. I like making my own.
0: When Anna and I came to the conclusion that we were ready to make our own ending and started talking specifically about when we wanted to exit and what story we wanted to use, well, I knew this story needed to be involved somehow. Like I said, it just feels like what we've been doing here at PodCastle. And that ending, pulling the future toward us, making our own escape. Like Anna said, we wanted to make our own ending, and this one seemed pretty perfect.
1: I've really enjoyed the great good fortune I've had to make Podcastle and especially working with Dave who is a fantastic human being and better than most of you know and you already think he's a nice guy I hope to get the chance to work collaboratively with him on something else someday but this thing we did for all those years it feels finished to me so we're picking our ending we'd like take a little minute to reflect on everything that's happened here
0: some of the things that we're super proud of
1: like discovering authors we didn't know we loved and bringing them forward to share with you some examples of that would be Ben Burgess, Claire Cooney, Saladin Ahmed you got some Dave?
0: No, um, let's see authors I really like, I have a few Amal El-Motar Daniel Abraham, Zin Cho, and Patricia Russo. We carried on a couple traditions. Um, we even started one of our own, but we carried on the Squonk stories from Escape Pod. And um, we also started doing the Tim Pratt and Heather Sharp holiday stories. We got that first one, The Christmas Mummy. Um, it was It was a surprise for us when it came in. And it was a delight too and then we asked them to keep writing stories for the holidays and they did which has been awesome
1: one of the things that I'm proudest of is the moment when you hear the stories really come to life through the specific gifts of our narrators we use a lot of different narrators and they all first of all are very professional and do their best but they give a touch to the story that can only be given in this medium and it's a little bit like magic listening to it after having read it on the page, chosen it to buy, picked a narrator and then waited for that magic recording to come in
0: Are are there any specific ones that you're thinking of right now? I mean, not not to throw you off or anything, but
1: Yes, yes there are Um, Graham Dunlop did a narration of the Jeff Vandermeer story, remember?
0: The Surgeon's Tale? Yes, that uh, that
1: was amazing And our prior um, CEO, Ben Phillips, did that narration of the Gene Wolfe story, remember?
0: Oh, yeah, that was a good one. The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories.
1: Oh, my yeah. goodness. So good. Yeah. There are many like that, but those are two that stand out in my mind. What about you, Dave?
0: There, there are a ton of them. I mean, that, that's part of what we have so much fun doing is picking the stories and matching the narrations for them. Um, one that comes to mind recently it was Desrina Boscovich's thirteen incantations, and I knew that asking Tina was the perfect person, Tina Connolly, to read that story but when her narration came in, I was just totally floored we've been working with Tina for a long time pretty much since we started
1: oh oh wait wait there's one more <laughs> remember the NK Jemison
0: oh, story yeah. about Katrina oh, yeah.
1: that,
0: and that was a funny story because you know we're getting into making the sausage here and everything but um we, I think, you know, Ann Leckie gave us that story, and we talked to her about writing it, I mean about running it, and um, she agreed to let us run it, gave us, you know, some some thoughts about the narration, and we held on to that story for a long time, or at least it felt like a long time, trying to find the right narrator for it, we made special announcements. And then we got an audition from Larice White, who just killed it i mean she just killed it and and our you guys our audience just like crazy about it which was incredibly gratifying
1: yeah and we weren't sure because really we thought the story needed a male narrator but we're sometimes wrong and we were wrong then that was perfect
0: yeah it, it worked out so well certain stories were near and dear to our hearts um when they came together they just came together perfectly and it's not that they were better than story than the other stories that we ran but they kind of like for me at least signified certain periods of time for us certain themes um the first one do you want to do you want to say it anna what was the first one
1: the Mermaid's Tea Party! Oh, yeah!
0: The Mermaid's Tea Party. Fishy bitches. We love that story. Love so it. So much. And that was another one Tina came in and, and did for us and just nailed it. Just totally oh, nailed man. it. So Tina actually really feels like somebody who hasn't been on staff at Podcast Lever, but has been with us from the beginning, at least from my perspective. So.
1: One of my favorites was uh, Hal Duncan's The Behold of the Eye. Mm.
0: Yeah. That was so a great good. One. That was a great one. Uh, we've got a few more here. Without faith, without law, without joy, by Saladin Ahmed. Saladin sent us a lot of amazing stories, um, and
1: we didn't even run all of them.
0: N- no, we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> he
1: sent us some stuff. <laughs> Believe it or not, he has sent us some stuff that we didn't run.
0: But we, but this particular story—it's the last story of his that we've run—and it's literally one of. My favorite pieces of fiction that we've done a podcastle. Um, it was great. Uh, Ferret Steinmetz's "As Below, So Above."
1: And here I want to say that <laughs> this is why we we don't say fantasy fiction is x or y or z because when we first talked about running this story dave was like oh we should run this story and i was like well this story is actually science fiction but we won't tell anybody and we'll just run it and maybe nobody will notice um i do think some people noticed yeah i think (laughs) i
0: think one or two people on the forum were like wasn't this science fiction but generally people (laughs) were like "Ah, we don't care it was an awesome story so it
1: was an awesome story we don't care it's an awesome story I was like, oh, actually, this is the island of Dr. Moreau. (laughs)
0: Um, Kelly links the Hortlack. Um, Also some zombie contingency plans, but man, I love the Hortlack. I mean, that story is so weird and so bizarre and so perfect, too. Uh, David W. Goldman's The Axiom of Choice is another incredible story. And that was one that (laughs) we were reading and we were like, can this work in audio? Yes, it could. And that was a big part because um, Eric Luke's narration was just killer for it.
1: Mm. Also, uh, selected program notes from the retrospective exhibition of Teresa Rosenberg-Latimer.
0: Oh, yeah, by Ken Schneier. Actually, pretty much every episode with a very long title... (laughs) We, we, we loved <laughs> We really like long The longer titles. the title,
1: we, the better. We've
0: got a long title coming up in a couple of weeks here uh, by by Ian Tregellis. <laughs> the, oh, that's yes. the longest title ever, but such a cool story. Very good. Um, you know, and all the full cast productions uh, we've done have been really special, but especially in the stacks. Um And like I said, those are not the best stories necessarily that we've done in podcast, but they're stories that meant something uh, personal and special to us. Um, We're going on really long here, but thanks for bearing with us. It's been a lot of fun. So, you know, the other thing is we've gotten to connect with some authors and run some of their stories that we love. Some of them we've already mentioned, but um, Gene Wolfe, Kelly Link, Jeff Vandermeer, Caitlin R. Kiernan, Holly Black, Peter S. Beagle, Garth Nix. I mean, it was incredible to be able to feature some of their fiction here.
1: Of course, none of this is possible without the people who have helped us and stood by us and worked with us on all of this. So here is the people, or at least some of the people, whom we want to thank. Obviously, we can't thank everybody individually, but here goes. Rachel Sorsky. Anne Leckie, Steve Ely, Ben Phillips, Peter Wood. Can I just say that again? Peter Wood. Peter Wood. M- <laughs> Peter Wood. M.K. Hobson, LaShawn Wanak, Aaron Jiwa, Sarah Goldman. Our forum kings and queens, Aussie Cat and Talia, Bill Peters, Eiten Zweig, Brian Lieberman, and
0: Marshall, Marshall Latham. Uh. You know, also, I want to give a big shout out to our, our publishers and co-owners, Alistair Stewart and J. Daniel Sawyer, who have been super supportive about us moving on and letting us stay on for another few months to see things through. Thank you very much, guys. Um, additionally, Paul Herring is somebody who writes the a checks. Shout out, he writes the checks. And used if to you've ever publishing.
1: been paid from PodCastle, you were paid by Paul Herring. Right, Thank baby. you, Paul.
0: Amanda Fitzwater was our former sound producer and really enjoyed working with her. Um, there's friends of ours who have edited the other Escape Artist podcasts alongside us, and those include Mer Lafferty, Sean Garrett, Norm Sherman, Jeremy Tolbert. Uh, folks from our sister podcast who've been incredibly helpful include Rachel K. Jones, Nathaniel Lee, and Alex Hoflick.
1: Additionally, if you've ever gotten a uh, contract from PodCastle (laughs) before you got paid, uh, that would be either through the work of Scarlett or, before her, Inara. So thank you guys as well. Um, We'd also like to extend a thank you to all the narrators we've worked with and a few by name, Tina Connolly, Wilson Fowley, Graham Dunlap, I know we've said his name several times, but damn, he does the work of
3: two Lizard Kings. They're
0: they're all just have been super helpful and super supportive and have, you know, often come around with last minute recordings when we needed them. So we love you guys. Thank you. Um, All the authors who sent us stories over the years, who trusted us to make things they could be proud of in a different format from how they created it. Thank you so much. All of you.
1: Thank you. So, you've borne through all the thank yous, now you get a cookie, because you're probably wondering who is going to be taking the helm of the castle. That would be Don and Kitty, and they have, in true podcastle style, written their own introduction. Don and Kitty, take it away.
3: Hi there, listeners. I'm Kitty Nikian. And I'm Don Phoenix. And we'll be your new hosts coming soon. We're both longtime fantasy readers, listeners, and viewers, and we're looking forward to editing the upcoming podcast lineup for your enjoyment. And ours. My tastes these days run towards the dark, the darkly comic, and the surreal.
1: While well, mine tend to be along the lines of fantasy that catches me by surprise.
3: Well, we've got some exciting plans for the next year. Each quarter we will choose stories according to an overarching theme. Think of it like an audio anthology. We've got the themes for the next year picked out. Well... Mostly. We're still arguing about one or more of them. And our first theme for stories to start airing in April is dirty jobs. Every society has them. The hidden jobs that no one knows about. The hard jobs that no one glamorizes. The secret jobs everyone pretends do not exist.
1: Every society has them. Every
3: society needs them. Even societies where magic and myth and monsters come into play. These are the stories we want. The dirty jobs in the fantasy world. We'll be reopening submissions January 15th. As always, PodCastle will accept new stories as well as reprints. And we'll see you all in
0: April. All right. Thank you, Don and Kitty. Um, Thank you to you, our audience, for being with us. Some of you were here before we came. Some of you came after we started. Wherever you signed up with us on this journey, thank you. Thank you very much for coming along, for trusting us.
1: And keep to the road, friends. There will be more stories for you here. Now we get to ride along beside y'all instead of pumping the bellows. Yeah, baby. I'm looking forward to it. One last word. It's hard to cram five years into just a few minutes. We almost definitely have omitted someone whom we loved, whom we would have wanted to thank and shine a spot on in this last little bit of time. If that's you, thanks. And sorry we didn't name check you.
0: Well, that was our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. Um, our closing quote, <laughs> I'm going to cheat here with a song lyric. Anna, you sure about this one? Yes. Feeling brave? Okay.
1: Yes, All go right. for it.
0: here's our closing quote. I woke up at the moment when the miracle occurred. I get so many things I don't deserve. All the stolen voices will someday be returned. The most beautiful sound I'd ever heard. Your voices will be heard. That's by you two from The Miracle. And uh, thank you so much again for listening. Keep on pulling the future toward you guys. And we'll see you soon.
1: Goodbye.